Our sinful hearts tend toward presumption. We either forget your holiness or, or we forget your love and your tenderness, your grace and your mercy. Rather than boldness, Lord, and joyful expectation, even though even though we are weak and foolish, we imagine ourselves wiser than you. We look at our circumstances and we fret and we panic. In our pride and in our rebellion, we spurn your commandments and your instruction. And even though we know better, even though we know the good news and rest in it, we often live as if you only love us and bless us when we're good, but that you're angry with us when we're not. Lord Jesus, we know in our hearts, we know that there is no wrath left for us. You, you expended all your wrath on your son, Heavenly Father. We know that he bore it in our place, so there is no longer any anger for us. But remind us, Lord, please, we are forgetful people. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Help us to remember just how gracious you have been and are being toward us. Then we will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver us, O God of our salvation, and our tongues will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open our lips that our mouths might declare your praise. Heavenly, <coughs> Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, we ask that you, would, that you would break our hearts, that you would give us broken and contrite hearts. Let us glimpse the glory of of our holy and sovereign King, and let us know your fatherly pleasure in Jesus Christ, for whose sake we ask it. Amen. Okay, we're going to keep the kids in here for the next four weeks and get your feel for how things are going. So if you have kids and you want to occupy them, there are some worksheets out there that take you through our very passage. Um, but if you could rise to... Uh, Hear God's call to worship him. Show us Christ. 
please be seated. Thank you, brother. So when we uh, when we left the people of Israel, Samuel had just offered a a farewell address. He's still going to pray for them and instruct them in the way of the Lord. So he's still going to be ministering among them. But they asked for a king. The king is standing before them. And uh, after he has had them admit to him that uh, and publicly proclaim that he has always dealt honestly with them, um, then he dropped this truth bomb on them that their request, this request for a king, it was a sinful request. And Samuel called for God to, to show that, to testify against them to that effect by bringing rain in the dry season. And uh, so the people, the people see that God himself is testifying against them. This has indeed been sinful. And so the people repent, uh, at least in what they say. And Samuel tells them that, yes, indeed, they have sinned, uh, but that God will bless them if they will just trust and obey. If they will walk in, the, in his ways, he will, it will all be well for them. But if they sin, they'll be swept away, they and their king. If they continue in sin, if they refuse to walk in the way of the Lord... They'll be swept away. Now, that's at Gilgal. That's where Saul was recrowned. You remember they renewed the kingdom after he delivered Jabesh Gilead. Samuel said, well, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. And so that's what they've done. And that's where Samuel dropped the truth bomb on them. And, all, and that's where we left them. Well, presumably, they all go home at this point. And, um, and so we are introduced to... Uh, to, King, to Saul's reign in an overview in the first verse of our text this morning. We are uh, continuing to make our way through the first part of Samuel. We're still in the first, uh, in first Samuel. We're in, in chapter 13. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, let me invite you to make your way over to chapter 13. Now listen to these first two verses, and, and we've got some discussion about them. Uh, Saul lived for one year... Or you could, the Hebrew is, Saul was a one-year-old, a son of a year. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, I don't know what translation you're using. Um, there are quite a variety of, appro of approaches to this. Um, I'm almost happy with the way the ESV handles it, uh, but, but the when in verse 1 uh, is not there. The, the Hebrew reads, he, Saul was a, a son of one year. Saul was a one-year-old at his coronation. And he reigned for two years. Now that's weird, right? And because of that weirdness, um, most scholars assume 
that there's a problem with the text at this point. That somewhere along the line, a, a number's dropped out. He was a son of year, and we just lost that somewhere. And so some translations actually leave a blank in there. The New Revised Standard Version reads this way. Saul was blank years old when he became, began to reign, and he reigned blank in two years over Israel. So they assume that a number fell away, and so they just leave the placeholder for where it should have been. Other translations, they look to Paul. Paul preached in, in Acts 13, and he, he, he talks about how Israel requested a king, and God gave them Saul for 40 years. And so some people just take that 40 from the New Testament, and they just bring it back and set it in here. The, um, they say, aha, we got the answer now. And so the, the uh, New American Standard reads this way. Saul was, oh, wow, New American Standard follows the NIV. I thought I had picked one that did. There are a number that say Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 and two years over Israel. Uh, other translations, like this New International Version, they actually look to a Greek translation. But... Most of the Greek translations don't even have the verse. So they look to a few manuscripts of, of, of a Greek translation and they say, it says 30, and they bring 30 in. <laughs> but I'd like you to turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to chapter 10. I know that this is a weird way of thinking about things, but in 1 Samuel 10, this is when Saul was anointed. You remember the whole donkey thing? His donkeys are lost, son of Kish. He goes hunting for the donkeys, right? And um, he hits a dead end, went to see Samuel, and they feasted. And he, as he's going home, remember, Samuel pulls him aside and anoints him with oil and gives him a bunch of signs that are going to take place to confirm that he is indeed being anointed as king. And toward the end of those signs, beginning in verse 5, we read this. Now, this provides a crucial context for understanding our passage this morning. Not only for understanding the weirdness in verse 1, but also for understanding the whole story. Samuel told him, after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines. Now, we've noted that this is pretty much a clue that when the spirit rushes on you, you're supposed to defeat the, the, the Philistine garrison. We know that he doesn't do that. But anyway, it says, when you, there's a Philistine garrisons there, garrison of the Philistines there, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and what? Be turned into another man. So how old is he at this point? Now, that when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. There's your command to take out the Philistines. Then, when you've done that, when you've done what your hand finds to do, then go down to meet me at Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you're supposed to do. When he turned back it, uh, his back to leave Samuel, God gave him a new heart. 
And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Okay, so again, how old is Saul? He is a one-year-old from one way of looking at it. Now look at the end of verse 6 there. I don't think the text is corrupted. Um, stay here in the text uh, for, a, for a minute in chapter 10. Um, there's more. I think Saul's given a birthday by God uh, in these signs. So he's a spiritual baby. And, and like the seed scattered among the, the, the thorns, or maybe he's like uh, that on rocky ground, Saul's going to spring up. Uh, and he, he looks strong initially, but he's going to quickly wither away. So I basically like the ESV. Uh, Saul's a one year from one one year old from one point of view, and that very same from that very, very same point of view, he's rejected as king in his second year of being king. Now, um, Paul tells us, and he may be rounding a bit, but he tells us that he reigns for forty years. Now think about that. Um, He's rejected by God. He's replaced by David. But there's a gap of about 38 years between the selection of David and David taking the throne. Now, in light of the the things that we're going to see in our passage, think about the patience that that required from David. Now, notice the instruction. This is why I had you say in chapter 10. When you come to where the Philistine garrison is and you take it, the Spirit of God, or I'm sorry, when you come to the Philistine garrison, the Spirit of God is going to rush upon you. And he was supposed to take it out then. But you know, we noted what he did instead. He did nothing. He went back to plowing his field. Well, in our passage, sometime in the first year of his reign, the garrison is defeated. It's not defeated by Saul himself, though. It's defeated by Jonathan. (coughs) And uh, now, of course, the king gets the credit for it. But that victory triggered the meeting at Gilgal. Chapter 10, Samuel said, when you find what your hand, do what your hand finds to do with respect to the Philistine garrison, and then go to Gilgal and wait a week. So, However long it took him, he's finally getting on the move. He's got some some troops now, and Jonathan takes out the garrison. So it triggers the meeting at Gilgal, um, where Saul was supposed to wait. And look, I don't want to be too critical. I mean, he was slow to take out the Philistines, (laughs) but that's kind of easy for me to say. Um, He didn't raise an enormous army. He just started with 3,000 men, two with him and one with with his son, Jonathan. So, you know, at at least at this point, the king's not overly demanding. Uh, You know, we were told he's going to take, 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 take. And he's really being kind of reasonable at this point. He's only got 3,000 men. Um, So again, Saul's a frustrating character. He's not all bad, but he ends badly. Okay, now into the action. Verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines uh, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. 
And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So we haven't been introduced to who Jonathan is just yet. You know, we don't know that he's Saul's son yet. He just kind of bursts onto the scene. And uh, quite the opposite of Eli's sons. Remember, Eli's sons didn't walk in the ways of their father. And Samuel's sons didn't walk in the way of their father. Well, you could say that Jonathan doesn't either because he would have been a great king. Jonathan is a wonderful character. I think it's fascinating, uh, though. His actions bring the heat, and, uh, and Saul summons Israel to respond, uh, we've become a stench to them. But I think that's fascinating, that it's just when we are the most obedient as the people of God, the most committed to God and His holiness, that is when we're going to become a stench to our enemies. And that's actually a sign of success. Anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We know that verse. We just don't believe that verse. What's true for Israel back then is true for us today. So Jonathan has defeated this one garrison, and the Philistines, they're not having that. They need to make an example out of these Hebrews, and so they mass an enormous force clearly trying to make a point. Verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilead, at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, the word for a thousand is the same word that it, it means, it can mean regiment or it can mean a thousand. And, and here I actually think that um, it probably wasn't 30,000 chariots. It could have been. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying. Probably means 30 regiments of chariots. You expect more horses than chariots and that kind of thing. Um, If it were 30,000, it's the largest gathering of chariots in history for sure. But even if it's 30 regiments of chariots, it's an enormous show of force. And to the Israelites who are seeing this come at them, this is the end of the world. Look at the language used of them. This is what the inhabitants of the earth will do when Christ returns in his glory. People hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. Now, I've been to Israel. I've been to the hill country where this took place. Um, It's not chariot territory, really. Chariots go on flat ground. This is hilly area. Um, But that's just it. Israel hasn't mustered their forces in the hill country, have they? Well, you don't know this, I suppose, but Gilgal, the hill country ends, and you get this flat plain, and Gilgal's just inside the flat plain. Well, 
chariots would do them great damage down there in the flat plain. I think we have to understand that to appreciate the pressure that's on Saul as he gathers in this flat plain and sees 30 regiments of chariots ready to wipe him out. Not excusing Saul for his actions. Not at all. But we would be foolish not to appreciate the struggle that he's undergoing. Samuel said to wait, but the Philistines are super mad. They're super powerful. And Samuel's late. And to make matters worse, he started with 3,000, blew the trumpet, summoned the whole nation, and now everybody, as they wait, everybody's going away from him. And we're going to find he's going to have 600 left. Now, you're the leader. You're watching an enormous military force, muster forces against you, ready for battle, and your forces are evaporating. This is disaster happening real time. What to do? What to do? I want you to appreciate the anxiety, the, the, the urgency of making a decision here for Saul. Because that's how we act. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, is his great sin usurping priestly duties here? I think that compounds his sin. I think it was wrong for him to do this. Um, at his anointing, he found out, remember, the people won't do anything until Samuel blesses the sacrifice, right? Um, so Saul was told to wait. Saul didn't wait. And that was his error. It was compounded by offering the sacrifice himself, but it was his fear. His refusal to wait patiently for the Lord, to recognize that the Lord is our fortress, He's our deliverer, we wait for Him. His lack of faith brought him to further disobedience so that he offered the sacrifice. See, he even thinks he's doing the right thing. Just like the Israelites who brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them with the Philistines. Remember that? They thought they were doing the right thing. Bring God into it. We need God to get involved. Well, Saul figures he needs God's blessing. The priest isn't here. And the reason I say is sin is impatience is here. Verse 10. As soon as, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come when the, at the time that was appointed and the Philistines are gathered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself, or I, I plucked up my courage, or I felt compelled. There's a number of ways that you can understand that. Um, 
I, I plucked up my courage and I offered the burnt offering. See, I was willing to stand in the gap. The priest wasn't here. I was willing to do it. See, I did the right thing. Saul is not confessing sin here. He's saying, and we're prone to thinking this way. He's saying, look at my circumstances. My circumstances warrant ignoring God's word. Now, we might not be so crass as to say it that way. But how often do we act contrary to God's instruction and then justify our actions or blame shift. The woman you gave me, she gave me, and I ate. But you know, at least that was a confession. Adam was confessing his sin. Saul, on the other hand, He doesn't confess it as a sin, but just tries to justify it as understandable given his situation. Verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. It it appears like this is Saul's great test. Like this was a, this was a test with a limited duration that, that it was either he would sustain the trial or he would fail the trial. He would either pass the test or he'd fail the test, but the test was a limited thing and he failed. That's what it looks like. Had he held fast in this issue and waited for Samuel... He would have had an eternal dynasty. But he didn't. Like our forefather Adam, this new representative of the people of God fails. But he foreshadows one who won't. Failure isn't the final word. The the Lord has sought out another, a man after God's own heart. And again, Saul's rejected as king pretty early in his reign, but God doesn't uh, take the crown from him. Instead, we're going to watch David patiently wait for the crown. He wouldn't dare attack the Lord's anointed king himself. If God will have me be king, David thinks, if God will have me be king, he will set me on the throne. I need not enter into machinations to make that happen. Takeaway from our passage is really simple this morning, brothers and sisters. God calls us to patience in obedience. We obey, it will cost us, 
We will be a stench to many. But we neither give up our obedience, nor do we seek to be delivered by our own wisdom and actions. Saul did both. He gave up on obedience and he trusted in his own wisdom. The scriptures are exceedingly clear on that point, aren't they? We, we are not to be trusted. Your mind is not to be trusted. Your eyes are not to be trusted. Your reasoning ability, tainted by sin. Even your eyes. <laughs> Remember Elisha's servant? When the Syrian army was surrounding the mountain and he was panicking and Elisha prayed that his eyes would be open so that he could see the host of angels that far outnumbered their enemy. You can't even trust your eyes. It's the Lord who lets you see or not see, let you understand or not understand. Wait for the Lord. Trust the Lord. Be patient. Don't try to manipulate your circumstances. That is not your job. You be faithful. That's your job. And God will take care of you. He promises. You know, it's significant that this all happens at Gilgal. When the, when the people entered the promised land, at least three things happened. They, they set up stones memorializing the, the crossing of the river on dry ground to, to testify to God's faithfulness. You know where they set those up? Gilgal. The manna stopped the day they entered Gilgal because they derived at the promised land. God faithfully kept his promises. And they were circumcised at Gilgal. All through the wilderness, nobody got circumcised in the wilderness. And they had this great, massive covenant renewal ceremony where they all got circumcised and God rolled back, that's what Gilgal means, they rolled back the guilt of Israel. So this is a place of covenant renewal. It's a place to reflect on God's power and faithfulness. Saul looked around at his circumstances and, and was overwhelmed. His enemies were too many. They hated him too much. Now listen to David in Psalm 25. And this is going to be the sort of thing that sets David in contrast to Saul for us. Make me know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Waiting on the Lord is one way of describing the Christian walk. David goes on a few verses later, Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Patience is one of the very hardest virtues to nurture, isn't it? 
How do you learn to wait? By waiting. But waiting's hard. It certainly was for Saul. But David is going to show us a much better way. The Lord is faithful. So trust him. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Take your anxiety and throw it before his cross. Our God is a strong fortress. Do you believe that? Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we confess that like Saul, we are sometimes just overwhelmed by our circumstances. Oh, Father, forgive us. We know that you are sovereign, that nothing, not a hair falls from our head without you directing it. You work all things together according to the counsel of your will, and you have worked all things together for the benefit of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And so, Father, forgive us for fretting over our circumstances and not trusting you. Forgive us for relying on our own wisdom or trying to manipulate things to, to work out okay for us. Help us, Lord, to, to just trust and obey and leave the results to you. Father, we ask that you would just empower us to do so for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name.